before I started the the following a strict carnivore diet, I thought I had no issues. You see, I I knew actually I knew I had high blood pressure, and I and I used to use blood pressure drugs, but with the low carbon keto diet, I had managed to push that down a bit. And on the carnivore diet, it went further down to normal, whatever that is, at least lower than that it, it had been. So I dropped the blood pressure meds. And I also dropped the acid reflux meds that I had been taking for years. Um, I also dropped this uh, aspirin or whatever it's called for the, to fight the, the blood clotting. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I went off in about six to nine months. I went off three drugs. I put my pride into uh, making the food from scratch. I, I tried to make uh, everything. I, I even bought pigs and lambs in whole and deboned them myself because I'm also a butcher and I used the bones for broth and instead of buying some powder to make broth of. But uh, I was also sometimes criticized for that because what I made from scratch didn't have a label on it that said exactly what was in it. Like for an example, I wanted for, for those people who had some issues eating, whether that was they were just very sick and old or they had trouble swallowing or they had trouble with the digestion, then the protocol is usually to give them nutrition drinks. So I made drink from skir. You know, skir is the Icelandic. It's actually a cheese, but it, it's like a yogurt, but it's high in protein and low in fat. So I make a boost out of it. I put in some berries or fruits and some cream, sometimes dairy cream, sometimes coconut cream, and put it in the mixer and they drink that. And it's, it's uh, health food. It's just natural stuff, but it had no label. So I had to buy something called Nutri Drink. That is basically half of it is sugar. And the other half of it is something synthetic, uh, artificial flavoring and stuff like that. Nothing was actually a food. But I was ordered to buy that instead of making a boost from skier and uh, cream and fruits. Everything is allowed because people are always asking, am I allowed to eat this? Can I eat this or that? And I see a lot of this in the keto group. And I don't, I don't like that approach. If you are someone like me, I'm allowed to eat anything I like. I just choose not to. And I also choose to not trouble people when they invite me to their house and they put something on the table and I say, no, I don't eat a tomato. 
or a potato or whatever, you know. But th this happens only a few times a year, so it's not really troubling me. But I, I, I realized that in my group, people don't really ask if they are allowed to eat this or that anymore. They just they just kind of ask what happens if you eat this. Mm. Does it trouble you a lot? And and I always say that if I eat this way because it makes me feel the best I've ever felt. I'm 52 and I feel much better now than when I was 32 or even 22. Welcome to the herd and thanks for listening. We're happy to help you have informed conversations with your healthcare providers. But please do not treat anything we say in this or any of our episodes as medical advice. Even when the guests are physicians, they're not your physician. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating, and follow, and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herdmates sodcast. Today, I'm pleased to be joined all the way from eight hours later in the day, and I don't know how many miles away, uh, someone from Iceland, a friend that I met in person, was it two years ago, I think, or a year and some months ago, I think. Yeah, almost two years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, Ivor Ostfjord, which I know is not the correct pronunciation, but he's very polite and he won't correct <laughs> me in public. Um, and I wanted to speak with Ivor, one, because Iceland is a place I only visited once. If you can call stopping on my way to Germany uh, at the airport, um, I don't think that counts as a visit, certainly when it was seven in 1973 that I did that. And I understand Iceland's changed a little bit since then. Yeah, I believe it has. Mm changed a lot since 1973, especially with regards to to uh, people from other countries coming here. I don't know how many travelers we would have gotten in 1973, but uh, I think it was in about 10 or 15 years ago, we used to get about two or 300,000 visitors every year. But uh, in 2018, I believe we had just over 2 million visitors. And so, you have less than 400,000 population, is that right? Something yeah, like about, that? about 350, 350,000. That's yeah. the population. <laughs> wow. So with like, that many, uh, yeah, how many hotels must you have? or uh, what? <laughs> we have many hotels, I can tell you. Some say way too many, but at least now they're all empty, or most of them. And that's a hardship for people that used to work there. Um, yeah, we, we're having a lot of troubles, of course, like like the rest of the world, I guess. And and I was I must confess I had to do some looking up to to get some Iceland facts in my mind, and I guess Iceland is just a little smaller in total land area than the state of Kentucky for people yeah, who have I'm, a U.S. <laughs> I believe, yeah, I believe that is correct. I think in square kilometers, I think we are about 100,000 square kilometers. 
And I thought you would so, if I'm remembering, that. yeah, I think it's like forty thousand, maybe a little less square miles, but yeah, a significant yeah. amount of that would be covered by glaciers. I think like ten percent or something. <clears throat> Not so much of it is covered by glaciers, but I'm not sure of the percentage. I would guess maybe 10%. Um, but still, if we talk about arable land or uh, cultivatable farmland in Iceland, uh, we were talking before we started that there's some challenges there. <clears throat> yeah, I'm also not familiar with the size of, of uh, land fit for farming but uh, we have we have uh, some difficulties because of the climate of course we cannot grow well we can grow a lot of vegetables here uh, for human consumption and we also grow some grains but the growing period is short it's maybe four or five months so I don't, don't, I'm not sure if it's the best thing to grow, grain and vegetables, but we do that anyway. Mm. I, I actually personally know a farmer, a, a pig farmer, who grows all his grains himself. So, so that's one way to go around. And he just rented some land for that. That was mostly actually sand when he started. Mm. So... He had challenges, but he's he's doing good. So how much, how is Iceland as far as its food supply? Is it a net importer of food? Well, we, we can totally take care of ourselves with, with animal products. We export most of the fish. We import very little meat. And we really don't need to import any, but we still do. Um, and eggs and dairy, we we are we can support ourselves with that. But we import most of our grains and probably most of our vegetables as well. As well, I'm I'm not I'm not quite familiar with how how big a percentage we can grow ourselves. But I know that uh, we grow a lot of vegetables in greenhouses because we have cheap energy. Or why? Why is your energy cheap? Well, we have renewable energy. We have thermal uh, power plants Geothermal. from thermal geothermal power plants, and and we have some uh, water uh, waterfall. Yeah, hydro that have been made to produce power for us so we have we have a lot of energy but uh, <clears throat> I, I, I said it was cheap and it's probably cheap for for me as a house owner but for someone who's growing vegetables in the cold in greenhouses it's probably very expensive and I, they actually complain about the price of electricity mm. because I, imagine oh, I also that... yeah I also think that because the power state, the power network is all governmentally owned, so I think they should, uh, for at least for this part of the, you know, making foods for ourselves, they should uh, have lower profit 
claims for, for that part of it, at least. And I wonder if they couldn't also, I mean, a significant part of greenhouse agri uh, horticulture would be heating. And if you have geothermal, you might have opportunity to yeah. um, leverage but, that, I'm sure. But still, you need lighting and you need all kinds of uh, other... You need a lot of lighting for this time of the year. It's It was dark here at 4 p.m. and and it will not be light again until probably 10 or 11 in the morning. Oh my. And so we're recording this on the 12th of December. So you got nine more days before it starts getting longer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did look at the map to see what latitude you were at. And I was quite surprised to see how far north you are. Yeah. Um, where I live is just a little bit below 45. And I think okay. if I remember, you're like 62 or something in there. It's yeah, 66, I think. Oh, 66. We have a we have a, we have a cloth brand actually that we call 66 degrees north. So that's Excellent. that's a clothing brand that that makes winter clothes. Well, <laughs> I, yeah. Although I hear you can swim outdoors year round in some places. Is that true? Oh yeah, all all around all around the country in every town in every in every county, in every, everywhere you can swim outdoors in warm waters. Well, I certainly look forward to the next time, the next time I get to visit <laughs> Iceland, which I think I'll yeah. be a little bit more aware of what's actually going on. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, we met in person. We had connected, I think, through social media because of some common interests. But we yeah. met, I think, the first time at the Low Carb Down Under Denver conference. We, I think we correct? met the day before that in Boulder. Oh, yes, thank you. At the Carnivore con conference. I had uh, made contact with you a year before when I wanted to bring you to Iceland. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, it, it didn't happen that time, but it will happen, as I told you before. <laughs> I did bring Sean Baker here. It was in January 2018. Mm. And I was trying to uh, make a small event on short notice and, and decided to, to try to bring the two of you. But unfortunately, only Sean could come. And we had the few good days here and he had a lecture for a small crowd but a happy crowd and then he had a, a workshop both in in training and and some educational <clears throat> of course in january 2018 he was we we all were pretty on on had uh, gone this way for a short time eating the carnivorous way and uh, so there weren't a lot of information around but uh, people like well all of us sean and you and so many others have done a lot of research and we of course have huge amount and piling amount of anecdotes and uh, we are just as the hour goes by we are collecting evidence mm -hmm. so so yeah that's how we met then we met uh, I, we met online actually I contacted you I am pretty 
well, I, if I think I, I need something, I just reach out for it. So <clears throat> that's just what I do. <laughs> um, so your personal um, story of how you came to follow a diet that's at this point almost exclusively um, animal source food, although I do understand that you do ingest at least one plant product. Is that right? I do. I have it in my mug here. Mm. I do drink coffee with my animal products, but I, that's a kind of, I think I'm addicted to it. So and I just don't have the time to go through the trouble of winning off at least not yet. <clears throat> so it doesn't have, it doesn't give me too much consequences to drink coffee every now and then. But yeah, I've, uh, I came to this, I've always been, I th at least I thought I've always been health conscious. I, my, I, I think a lot about my health. I always work out. I think about what I eat. But as you know, and many people know, we we, we get a lot of information on how to eat, especially if, if when the social media uh, is very active on spreading information. It, some of it's very good and some of it is, is not so good. And some of it actually, I think it's terrible. <clears throat> but before social media, you pretty much only had the official guidelines. So what you were doing was trying to eat not too much of basically everything but grains. It seems like the official guidelines think that that's the one thing we cannot get enough of. They In Iceland, they say we should have two portions minimum each day. Uh, that's how it is now. And they also say that we should have 500 grams of fruits and vegetables every day. So that's probably what I did. I, I, I did eat a lot of uh, vegetables most of my life. Never liked them though. <laughs> but <laughs> but I, uh, I did eat some meat and fish and I was trying to cut down on red meat like everyone else. And so a few years into my 40s, I had a, I had a stroke. Uh, I don't know exactly what it's called, but it's it's not really a, it's a it's kind of a minor stroke. It didn't have big impact, but <clears throat> it scared me, and I did uh, feel unwell for a few weeks after it. So I started when when the doctors sent me through all these uh, exams, uh, brain scan, heart scan, and blood tests, and all sorts of tests, and what they gave me was a blood pressure drug and aspirin or something for the to prevent blood clots and uh, told me to exercise and eat less and at that time i was 42 or 43 and i told my doctor i feel like i've been exercising and eating less for 25 years mm. 
and this is the result. Mm. Is there something I can eat, especially for my health or to lower my blood pressure or whatever, or is there something I shouldn't eat? And I got the same answer, uh, answer. now just exercise and eat less. So that was, I believe that was in March, 2012. That's when I started my own, doing my own research. That's about six months before I started working at the hospital as a cook. <clears throat> and my, uh, I think if I wouldn't have started at the hospital, my research would have gone a different way because I was, when I came into the hospital, I had the opportunity to talk to people who knew how to do research that I didn't before. And they, they taught me what to look for and uh, study. You cannot, I mean, study isn't always a study or science isn't always science. It's sometimes it's only best guess based on, on, on something very weak. And sometimes, sometimes they can tell you exactly what you should do. And there is a big gap between. And that was, that's how I learned about epidemiology, of course. And <clears throat> always, because uh, when I was at the, at the cafeteria at the hospital, discussing something with doctors and nurses and all these people with great education and, and all these great health workers here. I, the first thing I learned was that I cannot put something on the table and say uh, as a fact, and then just uh, say that I heard it from someone who sold me supplements that would be blown off the table. And so that's when I started using, I, <clears throat> I read it in a, a science magazine or I read it in a, <clears throat> in a study. And then they started asking me about what kind of study was it? And what's the quality of the study? So it took me a few years to, to learn how to go around this. And I have made my decision based on this. So when I when I started to do the research and luckily at the same time working at the hospital, I kind of got drifted into the low carb uh, sphere or area and uh, started there probably in 2012, eating a low carbohydrate diet. Basically, I cut out the grains and the starches, you know, the potatoes and rice and pasta and stuff like that. That was basically it to start with. And it went really well. And just the way I am put together, I, I, I kept reading and trying to get more information. And uh, that led me at some time into the ketogenic field with lower carbohydrate. And about three years ago, four years ago, about this time, four years ago, just before Christmas, I was being challenged to go on a vegan diet for the month of January 2017. 
and I just thought it was funny at first, and and then I was then I was a little surprised because so many people were challenging me to do that. I don't know why. If someone pointed me out or something, I don't I don't think so. I, maybe it's just karma, <laughs> mm-hmm. and and uh, I just for me that just wasn't an option. But then I realized that. Uh, people around me noticed that I wasn't really very fond of vegetables, even though on a keto diet or a low carb diet, you eat a lot of them. Mm -hmm. So I decided instead when January came, this is at the beginning of the week, January here in Iceland, probably was the second or third time they had it here. About a week into January, I decided I would, try to eat no vegetables for the rest of the month. So that was how I started on the carnivore diet for the first time. That was in January 2017. But I didn't really know what I was doing. So and I was looking for information on social media and on on Google and everywhere by looking for by Googling no plant diet. Mm. No and only animals diet with mm-hmm. with little luck but no plants diet led me to uh, some kind of a zero carb mm. uh, pages and that's how I came across that was in the beginning of January 2017 I came across Sean Baker and then uh, uh, just one by one a lot of other people's by that time, I already knew a lot of the low carbers like Ivor Cummings and Zoe Harkov and Nina Teicholz and Georgia Eden, all of those. But uh, that that's when I came in touch with uh, Sean Baker and I believe about a few months later, I saw you and, and your work and... Uh, so this is where I am now. I'm. I I I finished. I I I, I only finished the month of January on a zero carb diet. So, if I was having a meat stew or something for dinner, I just ate the stew. I just didn't add anything. Just maybe I had some broth with it or a little bit of veggies were in there, so I didn't mind. And I ate uh, meat that was in breadcrumbs sometimes, so it wasn't really uh, anything strict and I didn't really know what I was doing and after that almost four weeks of eating eating that way I had a blood test I had lost some weight and the doctors at the hospital had been watching me surprisingly and when they looked at my blood test they were actually more surprised because it was the best blood test I had had in years and uh, but I didn't but I I kept on my keto or low carb schedule for a while and did some more research and then when Sean Baker was asking people to do his trial that he did in 2017 in August to ask people to eat this way or meat and water for 90 days I signed up for that and I didn't want to start <laughs> full on until on the August 15th. So I was 
basically on a zero carb ish diet for the whole year of 2017 until the mid uh, that date August 15th I switched to carnivore and I was only going to do it strict for 90 days but I still haven't turned back even though I'm I'm not religious about it and I've said that before on interviews and uh, if I go to my mom's house for dinner I'm not going to ask her to cook especially for me I just eat my mom's wonderful food Mm-hmm. It may have consequences for me. I may not sleep as well the night after, especially if I have dessert. And uh, so that's kind of how I came across this way of eating. So um, your personal ex- uh, situation isn't one where you must be so strict to um, give you relief from things like rheumatic, uh, arthritis or some of the, um, autoimmune conditions that we hear some people in the, the carnivore space find relief from, but they have to be really strict about maintaining animal source food only and some of them exclusively beef. Um, so it's, it, you value that flexibility and being able, as you say, to be social. Yeah. Uh, before I started the, the following the strict carnivore diet, I thought I had no issues. You see, I, I knew, actually I knew I had high blood pressure and I, and I used to use blood pressure drugs, but with the low carbon keto diet, I had managed to push that down a bit. And on the carnivore diet, it went further down to normal, whatever that is, at least lower than it had been. So I dropped the blood pressure meds. And I also dropped the acid reflux meds that I had been taking for years. Um, I also dropped this uh, aspirin or whatever it's called for they to fight the, the blood clotting mm-hmm. uh, so i i went off in about six to nine months i went off three drugs and shortly after i started the carnivore diet i had been diagnosed with add or adhd i'm just not hyperactive so i have attention disorder and I have been using drugs for that for now almost four years. But my dosage was uh, one milligram per kilo body weight. So at that time I was using just over 100 milligrams. And that was, I had been working on that with my doctor to kind of feel what would suit me best. But when uh soon after i uh, <laughs> started eating this way my blood pressure went up again and i decided to drop instead of taking blood pressure drugs i decided to drop the concerta the add drugs and then it went down again so now i only use i only have to use Instead of uh, taking uh, 100, I think it was 110 milligrams, I'm taking 36 Hmm. each day. 
And I only take it on days when I go to work. I don't take it on weekends. Mm. So actually drop the dosage more than 75%. Mm-hmm. As well as eliminating the other three, which is significant. Yeah. So you mentioned work and you mentioned earlier that a lot of this, you were aided in your development by working in a hospital kitchen as the cook, um, in part because you learned what it means to be a quality research finding as opposed to nutritional epidemiology of chronic disease kind of approach. Um, But now for, and when we met, I think you were still working there. Yeah. And you were showing me or, or explaining to me, no, I think you showed me pictures of the yeah. kinds of meals that you were preparing for the pe- people that were fortunate enough to be the patients that you were serving. Um, looked like pretty good restaurant food to me, which is not typically something that you would say about hospital food. Well, it was... Uh... Also, I was unfortunate. I was fortunate to be working in a very small rural hospital, so we had only about 20-25 patient uh, beds for patients, mm. and about maybe 30 with the healthcare uh, on work days, maybe 35 on staff. So I was maybe cooking for 50 to 60 people, and that's pretty easy to make good food, but it's also easy to make it easy, you know, by, by buying everything prepared and stuff like that. But I didn't, I didn't do that. So I tried to, because I'm also, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, so I'm uh, qualified. Uh, I think it's, I should say I'm a registered diet cook or a dietary cook in Iceland, which means that I'm qualified for cooking for people in hospitals, people in schools and kindergartens, people with special uh, dietary needs. And I'm trained, <laughs> unfortunately, to work with, to work with dietitians as well. But luckily, <laughs> if I may say so, there was no dietitian in this rural hospital. So uh, I was working with the nurses and doctors mostly. And whenever a patient is admitted to the hospital, I get his name on a card and his condition and what sort of food, if he's just like A1, that's just everyone, you know, that's just what everyone gets, the staff and the patients. And then uh, in a small hospital like this, we don't really get a lot of problems. We had uh, small operation rooms, open only one week a month and it's actually been closed now for good so <clears throat> there was not not a lot of difficulties in the in the food mostly we had a few diabetics and we had a few uh, who came in there for lifestyle problems like over being overweight and high blood pressure and and like i said a few diabetes patients and then old people who had a hard time swallowing or chewing. So, but uh, yeah, I put my pride into uh, making the food from scratch. I, I tried to make uh, 
everything. I, I even bought pigs and lambs in whole and deboned them myself because I'm also a butcher and I use the bones for broth. And instead of buying some powder to make broth of, but uh, I was also sometimes criticized for that because what I made from scratch didn't have a label on it that said exactly what was in it. Remarkable. Yeah, I know. <laughs> because, because those labels are an approximation themselves. So yeah. what most people don't understand is that plant source foods vary so much in their nutritional composition that unless yeah, you so test every <laughs> single lot, you really don't know. You're just going to the table and pulling out an average value and plugging it in. Yeah, exactly. So, like, for an example, I wanted, for, for those people who had some issues eating, whether that was they were just very sick and old or they had trouble swallowing or they had trouble with the digestion, then the protocol is usually to give them nutrition drinks so I made drink from skir. You know, skir is the Icelandic. It's actually a cheese, but it, it's like a yogurt, but it's high in protein and low in fat. So I make a boost out of it. I put in some berries or fruits and some cream, sometimes dairy cream, sometimes coconut cream, and put it in the mixer and they drink that. And it's, it's uh, health food. It's just natural stuff, but it had no label. So I had to buy something called Nutri Drink that is basically half of it is sugar. And the other half of it is something synthetic, uh, artificial flavoring and stuff like that. Nothing was actually a food. But I was ordered to buy that instead of making a boost from skir and uh, cream and fruits. So, yeah, that's one of the reasons I left. And, and you're now, as you said, cooking at a, at a school now. What kind of age? Yeah, so I cook for, this is <clears throat> where I live now. I When I... When I was working in the hospital, I, I lived on a small island on just outside of the south coast, with a town about uh, town of about four thousand, maybe four thousand five hundred people. And now I live in a just outside of Reykjavik, about in a community of about ten thousand people. But I drive half an hour every morning to work to a small village of maybe four hundred. 450 and it's a community school and the whole community is probably about 800 people and I cook for the kindergarten kids from 18 months old and through grade school through 16 years and these are about 130 140 kids and then I cook for the teachers and some of the staff of the community. And that's a pretty interesting thing because these people 
they live up in the countryside. Most, a lot of their, their parents are farmers. This is the area where most of the vegetables in Iceland are grown in greenhouse in greenhouses. They are they have massive production and, and are, are actually making it bigger now. They are building more greenhouses. And so I I get local fresh vegetables uh, all year round. And I get the meat from the area. So I, I only buy Icelandic. That's just what I do. I I try not I I try to support local as much as I can. And so that's what I'm cooking now. <clears throat> and the interesting thing is that about in this rural area where I cook for about 130 people or or children, all in all I cook for about 200. But the children are about 130 and I have two cases of allergies. My wife is cooking in a kindergarten school here in, in town for 130 kids and she has 30 cases of allergies. And I believe in the countryside, children eat more meat and more more fresh vegetable, of course, from this area. But in, in the bigger towns, like where I live now, outside of Reykjavik, this is kind of a, more like a city environment. This is where you eat packaged food. Mm. You eat cereal from, you eat a lot of stuff from boxes. Yeah. I believe that is the reason. But, and, and also just um, exposure to the environment, soil yeah. and um, animals and those sorts of things. I've exactly. seen some work saying that that uh, might have an impact as well. So, um, so we've, I've heard lamb, I've heard beef, um, but poultry and swine production with the challenge of a grain supply, I would think that maybe not so much uh, in Iceland or? Yeah, you would think so, but but they are, I believe both poultry and pork is bigger than beef. And poultry is probably bigger than lamb as well. Lamb is going down rapidly for the last few years, but we import almost all the grain to feed to feed the pork and and poultry and you're part of eu is that correct uh we have we are a part of the europe european economic system we're not a part of the eu okay okay we're a part of efta which is another only five countries i believe in efta but we have a an agreement and also just an amazingly long form of government, um, as as yeah. I recall, is what what is the name? The Althingi. Althingi. Yeah. Um, so interesting. Um, and we were. It's my impression that the population of Iceland is very much uh, environmentally conscious um, and yeah, sensitive. Is so. that? Okay. And, and so as 
Well, one reaction to an animal source food-based diet is you're going to kill yourself. And that's closely oh. followed with you're going to destroy the planet. Yeah, kill everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's the way to put it. So um, what, what kind of reactions have you been getting as uh, I'm sure people you've now been on this for two and a half years or so three, three and a half three and a half years so <clears throat> as and and you're not shy about talking about it we have the Icelandic carnivore tribe yeah. um, and and other social media so I'm sure that you've become known for what kinds of reactions have you gotten along that kill yourselves or kill everybody else kind of response. Yeah, to begin with, people were shocked, surprised. They laughed. They told me, of course, I was going to die soon. <clears throat> and this was irresponsible and uh, all of that. But, but uh, along the way, people have become more curious. And now it's it's uh, strangely ma mainstream. It's, uh, it's kind of, it's not become mainstream, but everyone kind of knows about it. And no one really shakes their heads anymore, except a group of people that uh, are against animal husbandry in general. And I've actually noticed we have on social media, we, we have uh, a groups of people discussing climate change and stuff like that. And the vegans are coming in there with some claims that we need to stop eating meat, but they're kind of being pushed out because people just say veganism is not going to save the planet. We need to change the way we produce food. And I accept that. I when when people tell me that I'm re, I'm not responsible environmentally, I I I don't agree with that. But uh, I I don't agree that we necessarily need to eat less meat. But we definitely need to change the way we make meat, and uh, we need to do it more regeneratively and more sustainably and lose use less synthetic fertilizers and and stuff like that so i think i i think as people learn more they'll realize that what they want is quite often the current practice you know they just yeah. didn't know it um yeah. you know they they know the same thing that tells people that meat's going to kill them and then everybody else and so as they learn more, they maybe learn about the things that you've mentioned and they say, oh, well, this is new. We'd like more of this. And part of what I hope to do is introduce them to people that have been doing that for a couple decades now. It's just only coming to people's awareness at this point. Um, so, um, and, and you told me before we started of an interesting um, challenge. So um, the lamb industry in Iceland apparently is what we might call free range or common pasture 
kind of an approach where nobody owns the land that they're running on. They just go up into the mountains. Apparently there's no predators or very little. The the sheep do what they do. And then at the fall, you apparently bring them back down out of the high country and gather them up and sort them off and sell some and maintain the breeding flock or however the details, I, I don't mean to yeah. oversimplify. Um, but now people are pushing against that for environmental impact plus another aspect which you mentioned that i found interesting could you talk a little bit about those yeah so yeah this is free range lamb definitely and we we pretty much marketed for export as roaming free for a thousand years in iceland well not each lamb not a thousand years no <laughs> not islam no <laughs> but so yeah what you described this is what the farmers most of the farmers do we we put them up in the mountains and then we go a few months later and collect them and some are harvested and and we keep the breeding flock but the problem with this is that the lamb is grazing but they're not managed they just they just go wherever you know and they eat what they like and they don't think about if there is enough or <laughs> they just think about if they can have enough and uh, they just eat where they are and there are no predators there are there may be some foxes or something but very 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 little and you you don't lose many lambs in the summer probably most use most lose none so this is the problem uh, this is this this uh, leads to overgrazing in general and another problem with or the problem with overgrazing apparently is uh, co2 emission and no co2 sequestration sequestration is that right <laughs> so and then there is about the the fields the farmers use a lot of them have been drained because the land is very often too wet boggy yeah so a lot of them have been drained and that apparently releases a lot of co2 so this is why a kilo of uh, lamb meat is supposed to submit i think 50 kilos of CO2 or something like that. When you take everything into in, into account, the drainage of the fields and the losing of the land in the mountains, they 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 uh, account everything to the growing of the to the raising of the sheep. Mm -hmm. So it's a big bill to pay for the sheep. Yes. 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 So it would be interesting to look at things that might increase the efficiency of those animals. I'm exactly. imagining that animals grazing up in the hills aren't necessarily getting a high quality diet. So it's going to be higher in emissions than one that had higher digestibility of the fiber. So under more farmed forage conditions, we might see lower e emissions and certainly with managed grazing we 
wouldn't get the overgrazing, hopefully, and maybe some sequestration that could be measured. But then that that draining to produce anything is going to raise um, the the carbon footprint of whatever you're growing. So if you're growing vegetables in fields or grains or potatoes, I mean, I don't think you're growing potatoes in greenhouses, but you might very well do them out in fields. But that is going to raise their carbon footprint as well. So any agriculture on those drained fields is going to have a higher greenhouse gas emission footprint than were you able to, say, uh, farm mineral soils, less of the organic, um, you know, soils that that would be a, a drained sort of, sort of marshland bog kind of uh, situation, which I imagine is is what you're describing. So that was something I hadn't thought of. Um, so this this uh, social media and and more than that the the group that's been formed. Um, how active is that group? How many people would you say are taking part yeah. in that? Is, is, are there things that happen outside of, you know, the Facebook group? Yeah. Well, the group on Facebook called Icelandic Carnivore Tribe is uh, the members, I think it's just under 3,500. So it's about 1% of the nation. Uh, the activity is that uh, I can, being the one who founded that group, I can look it up as a, as an admin. So the, the act, active members are about, about three thousand, according to Facebook, which I think is very good actually, and those are the people that post, come and read the post. Most of them are only reading the posts or observing, but we have some some people that are pretty active in posting. I had to post <laughs> when I started the group, I had to post something. I tried to post at least one post every day for, I think for the first two years, just so that someone would post something. Mm-hmm. And now we, it depends on like this area, the, the holiday season, people are maybe not so much thinking about this actually now so i try to throw in their uh, post from time to time but people are always there are more and more people getting involved and i got a few admins or moderators with me to help run the group and we have had a meetup every january since sean baker came here so the not many people 10 to 20 people meet meet but we have fun and eat a lot of meat. We we meet in a restaurant, and the restaurant uh, owned by my friend. He makes he makes a special menu just for us for that one night, and uh, yeah, it's just fun. Ten to twenty people, one good night of eating and chatting with like-minded people. So that's that's fun. Outside of the group, we also have a very active keto group. They are probably five times bigger than we are, hmm. 15, 16, 17,000. I don't know about the activity, but they are, I see a lot of people are pretty active in there, but what I try to avoid 
in my group, if I can call it my group, is that, uh, and I think I actually have found a way or, or, or made people realize that everything is allowed because people are always asking, am I allowed to eat this? Can I eat this or that? And I see a lot of this in the keto group and I don't, I don't like that approach. If you are very unhealthy and very sick and maybe almost dying, then there, there are things that you are not allowed to eat. But if you are someone like me, I'm allowed to eat anything I like. I just choose not to. And I also choose to not trouble people when they invite me to their house and they put something on the table and I say, no, I don't eat a tomato or a potato or whatever, you know. But this happens only a few times a year, so it's not really troubling me. But I, I, I realized that in my group, people don't really ask if they are allowed to eat this or that anymore. They just they just kind of ask, what happens if you eat this? Mm. Does it trouble you a lot? And and I always say that if I eat this way because it makes me feel the best I've ever felt. I'm 52 and I feel much better now than when I was 32 or even 22. But as people may remember, if they can think <laughs> when they were 22, you didn't really think about how you felt because it didn't really matter what you ate or what you did, or if you did have a drink, if you went for a big night out on the town, and you didn't even remember a thing, you hardly got hangover because your, your body could take anything. But if you do that for a number of years, you wear your body down, <laughs> everything you do, and also your digestive system. So now, like, I have never had arthritis, at least not diagnosed, but for a, for a some time before I started this low carb, or before I started this, this uh, carnivore thing, I had very bad joint pain in my knees. And if I had a big workout in the gym, the morning after I, I limped out of bed, mm. basically. So I was really, but, but that was only for 10 or 15 minutes and then I was okay, good to go. But I did limp out of bed. I had a very bad, especially left knee. And uh, about 10, maybe 15 days into the carnivore experiment of Sean Baker, I was just gone, mm -hmm. totally gone. And I was, I was actually so surprised. And for the first about maybe 60 or 70 days of that experiment, I just, I just felt that I felt better every day mm. than the day before. And I was, I was really starting to think, where does this end? I mean, to tell you the truth, I, I said to someone, I feel so good and so much better every day. It wouldn't surprise me it would end with an orgasm. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, and it we, may have, but we don't need to get into that. <laughs> no. <laughs> but but um, so the um, have you what what has been the response for from the livestock growers or the farmers if they're not so specialized to what you've been talking about? Have you made connections? into them or is it mostly just social like you said you're now cooking in a school where there's a lot of agriculture around um has have any of those people from uh, sort of talked to you about this on on that basis i can't say they really have maybe two or three people have uh, mentioned something like this to me there's one there's one farmer here who's has a dairy farm that's organic certified organic and he is uh, very active in the in the climate change discussion so and we've talked a few times just through social media and uh, <clears throat> i can't say that farmers or or food or livestock products production people here have contacted me but I kind of someone tells me that you know I have a friend who says hey this guy was talking about you and they like what you're doing and this guy was talking so this is how I hear of it but <laughs> not really a contact I've actually made contact with a few people I know in the farming in, in farming just to ask them a few things about are you using uh, fertilizers you know chemical fertilizers or are you using manure or or whatever and actually i'm a little disappointed in the <laughs> reaction i get because they they know how to do what they're doing using all the equipment and all the uh, chemical fertilizers and stuff like that and they do that the way they were probably taught by the people who are selling them the stuff mm. and they do that very well and efficiently but when i mentioned that i would like to see farmers in general use less chemical stuff and more organic stuff then some of them say it's not possible some of them say it's too much work and when I mentioned regenerative farming and uh, managed grazing, and then they definitely say it's too much work. Mm. Yeah, we, we, uh, ha we have to find ways to have those conversations. And part of it is probably showing them how they can actually get better return on their investment. Exactly. Um, because efficiency lowers impact and efficiency ought to also increase your return. You know, yeah. you, you, you getting more out of what you're putting in or you're managing the resource that you have in a way that produces for less inputs, which means less cost. So, and, and it, it, farmers tend to be conservative folks. It, <laughs> you learn that over years, that you see lots of great new ideas come by. 
and you get to watch the people that adopt them and frequently they don't end well. And so people are like, oh, well, okay, I, I, you know, this I know. It, yeah. Well, it's like us changing anything in our lives. It's what we know is most comfortable, that threat that comes from imagining change. That's a lot of inertia to overcome. So um, I, I guess just to, to give you the opportunity, well, one last question. What sorts of things um, might help in conversations from the environmental or from the sustainability conversation perspective? What sorts of informations w- information would help you in Iceland answer some of the concerns or criticisms? Well, I um, about the efficiency of the agricultural. Uh, I'm not going to say industry, or yeah, maybe I'm just going to say industry. <laughs> about the the way agriculture is done here, people just don't seem to know that there are these ways, and like uh, <laughs> I. Have like I said, I've been talking to a few farmers or people related to farmers about how things are done. And when I mention that there are ways to manage things better and we need to do that, I get a lot of the answers that it's not possible, it's too expensive or too much work or something like that. But I have done some research into that, and I think it is possible to do it regeneratively, a lot more, at least. I mean, we're in a different climate than you are. To uh, say the if, least. To say the least, yeah. If I mean, if you had some livestock, you may might have them out grazing all year round. I'm not sure. Maybe, probably. Yeah, but here, pasture might not be growing, but we could have them out. Yeah, exactly. So, in the south of Iceland, that would m- most likely be possible everywhere in the south of Iceland. That's where I live. So, I actually thought to my said to myself that there's just someone who needs to start, and uh, not to put me myself on a high horse. I told you before that I just actually bought a piece of land. So I might try this way. And I have actually contacted two people to advise me about this. One of them is you. (laughs) I, I wrote you an email about a month ago and told you about my ideas. And if you would give me some advice, which you replied that you would. And the other one is Dr. Alan Williams. Mm-hmm. I sent him an email and I actually have a Zoom meeting with him next week. Good. So so he's going to help me as well. Good. And, and congratulations. Did, yeah, thank you. <laughs> and one thing I also did is that uh, there is uh, this uh, institution here that I would call agricultural advisory board or something like that and they have people who you can contact for advice when you want to start this business so i've been 
I've been in touch with one of them and had a few meetings. And when I told him that I, of about the way I wanted to do this by manage the grazing and I will probably only have about 10 animals anyway. So it will be on a very small scale, but this is what I want to do. And uh, he said, well, I know about this regenerative way. We know it's being done, but there's no one here who's a specialist in it. Hmm. There's no one here who can advise you, but uh, they would like to, they would like to, you know, observe what's being done. Perfect. Perfect. And if, if you and, and Dr. Williams are willing to advise, then that would be great. Yes, so that's the absolutely. plan. I just actually signed the contract, signed the contract for the property yesterday. And I will be selling this property. <laughs> I have actually already sold it. I've only owned it for just over a year, but uh, we are moving. So this is about, I told you before, I have to drive half an hour to work, but when I move, I only have to drive 15 minutes. So oh. I'm moving closer to work and yeah and hope to be starting a little bit of farming just soon into the new year. Excellent. And I look forward to helping in any way that I can. And yeah, so do I. I look, Thank you. I look forward to um, the first, the, the time that I can gather in your January uh, restaurant meeting, meetup. And yeah. um, so just in closing are there questions something that you'd like to ask me i'm very grateful for the opportunity to ask you so many questions but it's only fair yeah. to give you the chance <laughs> yeah so this would be i would uh, i was uh, looking at your uh, lecture on protein because uh, that's a uh, the biggest issue here is about uh, dietary protein for people. I, I am trying to push forward that the best quality protein we get is from animal sourced food. And your lecture on, I think you called it, is protein always protein? Yeah, something. Uh, when is protein yeah. in quotes, not protein? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And so I am very curious also about this true protein and crude protein mm -hmm. and the digestibility of the and the absorption of the amino acids. Yes. So um, when we look in food tables and it lists protein and when we look on, on labels, now I'm speaking from a U.S., but I think this is the case elsewhere as well the number that's presented as protein is actually technically a crude protein value. Now, crude protein is something we've done for well over 100 years. You analyze the total nitrogen content in a sample. You express that content as a percent nitrogen, that number. You multiply that number by 6.25 based on the assumption that all the nitrogen that was in that sample was in protein and all that protein was 16% nitrogen. Mm. 
Now, in ruminant animal agriculture, that works okay because ruminants can utilize non-protein nitrogen. More specifically, the, the microorganisms in their rumen can capture non-protein nitrogen, convert it into microbial protein, and then the host animal digests the microbes. So in ruminant animals, for the most part, there's no such thing as an essential amino acid in their diet. Not so much with monogastrics like us or like swine, for example. We must have specific amounts of specific amino acids. So that crude protein value was easy to get. We've got a lot of history of accumulating all those values. That's one problem. It's, it's not really protein. Number two is even that value when you analyze plant material, a significant amount of that plant material that's called crude protein is non-protein nitrogen. So you can have, for example, nitrates in plant material. Well, that's not amino acids. It's not protein, but it's nitrogen. And so we're going to multiply that amount by a number and overestimate its protein value when we just look at a crude protein. In potatoes, for example, I think it can be as much as a quarter of the listed protein is going to be from non-protein nitrogen and therefore no use to humans. Okay, that's number one. Number two, or maybe it's number two. Number three, um, just because even if we were to determine the amino acid composition in plants, which again varies quite a bit based on a lot of factors, so we'd be looking at average values. But even if we had those average values, just because it's there doesn't mean we can absorb it. And so what we have to be concerned about is the digestible essential amino acid content of foods. And then we become aware that when we cook plant source foods, we tend to decrease the digestibility of certain indispensable amino acids relative to what they were raw. So when we look at wheat, for example, which wheat is the single largest source of protein in humanity's supply globally. More, you know, it's, it's, it's more than half of all the animal source foods combined comes, is a value, you know, it's like 20%. But it's digest, it, there's, there's a new, relatively new quality estimation tool. It's called DIAS, Digestible Indispensable Amino Acid Score. And that score rates wheat for adults at being about half the value of, say, pork belly or a medium-rare ribeye steak or eggs or dairy or th those excellent quality sources of protein. But then we don't eat raw wheat berries. No. So when we grind them and make whole wheat bread or we make a breakfast cereal out of them, 
we for for the whole wheat bread we actually take that that low value for wheat and we cut it in half so it goes from about 50 to about 20. and then when we make breakfast cereal out of it we take it from that 50 to like one or two and and the so we're we're gaining sophistication in estimating the actual quality, there's a lot of work that has to be done yet. But a lot of this work has been part of the swine industry in the United States for four decades now, because they know exquisitely how to how much of these amino acids they need to be providing in their rations from what sources in order to achieve the goals that they have for those animals within the time frames. And um, we, we have not gotten that sophisticated by a long shot in, in human nutrition yet in as commonly practiced. And okay. so that, that, that idea that what most people, you know, so we have people tracking macros mm -hmm. and they have no idea because of this. One of the issues is this particular limitation in the data that they're using to estimate what they're actually eating. Yeah. So about this, then uh, lately the most, at least most vegans that I interact with, there are not many, but uh, they lately have been using the claim that all essential amino acids are also in all plants. I've, I've seen no data about this, uh, but I give them the benefit because I don't know enough to say that it's wrong. I think it's wrong. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> then I, I give them the benefit of doubt that some vegan high priest has told them this. Mm -hmm. So my answer to that is, is only that it may be there, but it may still be there a few days after you've eaten it and returned it. Yeah, exactly. Just because it's present doesn't mean it's available. Yeah. That, that's exactly correct. So that's and correct. and the, sec the, the second point is, are they available in the appropriate amounts? Yeah, and that um, too. Because I, I knew it, that. So, mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is this is basically what I needed. I'm very interested in that part of the the pro, especially about digest digestibility of the plant protein. Mm. Well, and if we think about it, humans have well. It's easy to imagine that we have some flexibility in terms of energy. We could run on fat. We could run on a bit of carbohydrate. Protein is a hard requirement. Um, and, and, and those amounts of those uh, indispensable amino acids are a hard requirement. They're, people talk about percent of calories from protein, and that's incorrect because your total caloric intake can vary day to day, but your amount of those indispensable amino acids that you need, that's a hard amount. So, you know, 30 grams you to, to get that. You, you have to get that. And it's not appropriate to be thinking in terms of percent calories for that. I'll have to translate that, find a word for that in Icelandic, <laughs> the oh. indispensable. 
amount. Yeah, yeah. I, I work on that. <laughs> and and feel free to reach out. I'm happy to give you some words yeah, from the English you. and we can work on it. <laughs> um, Ivor, thank you so much for this time, for staying up late, uh, even though it got dark. What did you say? Four o'clock? Yeah. Um, so I, I appreciate it. Congratulations again on becoming a landowner. I, I wish you I wish you success with that, and I'm looking forward to learning um, what it's what it, what it's like to farm at 66 North. Um, and and you might be able to grow some. I remember somebody saying that in Alaska they grow these monstrous cabbages just huge because the day is so long and these animals, the animals, these, these plants just grow uh, in an abnormal way compared to what we're used to down in the continental U S. So, yeah, we do um, that here in the, in the summer as well, the cabbages and uh, some carrots and sweets and stuff like that outdoors, but the greenhouses mostly do tomatoes, cucumbers, peppers, salad. Bananas. Yeah, more warmer season. Bananas. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Oh, jeez. Uh, who knew? Something else. A banana from Iceland. Um, yeah. You can't do that without cheap energy. Um, nope. <laughs> thanks again, my friend. It's great to visit with you. Uh, I've learned a lot more about you and about Iceland, and I, I'm, I'm trusting that the listeners will have learned and enjoyed the conversation as well. So thank you very much. Happy holidays. Yeah, thank you for having me, Peter. My pleasure. <laughs>